This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. The federal election is tomorrow after what feels like a never-ending campaign and certainly one of the most polarizing. Liberal leader Justin Trudeau has accused the conservatives of engaging in the dirtiest, nastiest campaigns based on disinformation that we've ever seen in this country. And despite calling Trudeau a phony and a fraud in the last English debate, conservative leader Andrew Scheer is basically making the same accusation about the liberals. And the Greens, they're accusing the New Democrats of disinformation. On Thursday, Libby Snymer was joined by Michael Diamond, principal of Upstream Strategy Group, and Patrick Gossage, chairman of Media Profile, who's been around political campaigns for decades. I like to think of it as sort of ungentlemanly. I mean, I can think of gentlemanly uh, uh, campaigns. The 79 campaign, which Trudeau lost, was pretty gentlemanly. I mean, he made fun of Clark, but that's the worst that he ever did. I mean, to, you know, to to say that a prime minister is unworthy of being a prime minister and is a fraud and a cheat and a liar is pretty strong stuff. And, I mean, and Trudeau has been pretty tough himself on on uh, here and, you know, really attacked him on his, uh, you know, views of abortion, which he holds similar views, but attacked him absolutely mercilessly in the, in the uh, French debate. And, you know, these are, these are attacks that we're not used to. I mean, I've lived a long time and I think it's, it's so, and, you know, and I think the other unfortunate thing is that it's played back into the household. I mean, in my riding, my liberal candidate is getting shouted at at the door. There's a real hate on for Trudeau for people who don't like him and won't vote for him. And I'm certainly not. Really shouted at at the door. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know whether that happens in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, sheer supporters. I don't think so. But I mean, she gets quite worried about it. You know, I mean, there is a polarization and it does filter down to the average person. And I mean, I was, I was in the, the and apparently, uh, Apparently, uh, tr- people call Trudeau a jackass there. I mean, you know, do you, whoever called a prime minister a jackass? Oh, I mean, I've heard know. that quite a few times, actually, <laughs> for quite a few prime ministers. Yeah, that's true. But anyway, it is. No, but I mean, it is. It's a level of, it's a level of, of dislike and hate and, 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 you know, and, and split, a split that's much, much deeper than usual, I think. And it's unfortunate. And it, it, it's, 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 it's made it so that, you know, the two parties are now t- dead tied. They're both sinking in the polling support, and they're still tied. And so it's the none of the above is becoming almost a, you know, a, I mean, people are di- obviously not satisfied with either leader, I think. Michael? I think there's a great deal of pearl clenching uh, when people say this is the nastiest campaign ever. I mean, it it certainly has been a very nasty campaign. But I remember a time when there was an ad saying that Stephen Harper would put soldiers on our streets and our cities and that the liberals weren't making this up, which, by the way, they were making it up. Or an ad in the 1993 election uh, focusing on Jean Chrétien's uh, facial uh, facial issue, which was just unseemly and and ungentlemanly, of course. So uh, this is not an abnormally nasty 
election. It certainly is a nasty election. And where I will agree with Patrick is that uh, I think it is unprecedented how how far and wide it has disseminated into uh, your grassroots voters who are, are quite a bit more polarized than uh, typically uh, you have seen. What role will the undecided play? Look, it's Michael? going to be a huge role. Uh, uh, they, they will typically, many of them will decide when they walk into the bowling, polling station, when they have the ballot in front of them. So it's going to be the job of the five leaders, uh, the six leaders, if you, if you will, in Quebec, uh, to really uh, be, do the sales pitch this week and then get the job done. And Patrick? Yeah, no, I agree. And I mean, I think I think the the polls will definitely change over the weekend. They did in 2015. And, you know, we may see a quite unexpected turn over the weekend. And, you know, we'll all hold our breath. That's I for sure I'm going to. And any, I think anything could happen. And it's kind of exciting. You know what? It's a great. <laughs> it's rather exciting, to say the least. And Monday's going to be Monday night. We're going to be all with our fingers crossed and, you know, our toes crossed and hoping that our people do well, you know. Pay attention to the tour schedule this weekend. That's where you're going to know where the close races are. Michael Diamond, principal of Upstream Strategy Group, and Patrick Gossage, chairman of Media Profile, and once press secretary to the first Prime Minister Trudeau. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. You've likely heard the upsetting statistic that one in two Canadians will be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime. And everyone, it seems, is touched by the disease, whether suffering themselves or going through it with loved ones and friends. So why... Has this not emerged as a national issue during the federal election campaign? To answer this question, Libby was joined by Cindy Barnes, who's been diagnosed with stage three tonsil cancer, and Sean Cheery, senior manager of analysis at the Canadian Cancer Society. The financial impact is a big issue, and we've had three issues that we've been asking parties about ourselves, and uh, one of them is that the extension to the EI sickness benefit going from 15 to 26 weeks. We know for many common cancers that the treatment and recovery time is much longer than the the 15 weeks that's currently available. And also the compassionate caregiver benefit was extended from six weeks to 26 weeks in 2016. So we want to see the caregiver benefit uh, in line with the sickness benefit for the actual sick person as well. We're also asking for a cost recovery fee of $66 million for the, from the tobacco industry to cover the cost of the federal tobacco control strategy and all the work the federal government has to do because of exposure to smoking. And we also want to close the gap in coverage for take-home cancer drugs in Canada. You know, we do have coverage, but with take-home cancer drugs, if you live in a western province or Quebec, you're covered, but Ontario and eastern provinces, you aren't. Unless you have private coverage, um, there's a huge out-of-pocket expense for those take-home cancer drugs. We're asking the federal government for considering it. You know, we we haven't seen anybody step forward on it, but we've been seeing you know the parties coming forward with their pharmacare plans, and we're hopeful that it could fold into what they're planning for pharmacare. Cindy Barnes, tell us a little bit about your story. When you were in treatment, uh, was it a financial hardship? How did you manage? My, I did not have any benefits. Uh, I was under contract with my employer, so I personally did not have any benefits. I was very fortunate that my husband had benefits. But however, um, my husband took four months off work to look after me because the treatments are so debilitating. So he left work with um, no coverage, like there was no coverage for him. So his salary was 
void for four months while he looked after me. But however, my medication was covered through his benefits. What did that do to your family having to, to how did that affect your family? Uh, well, it certainly changes things for a while, but it, it, it had to be done. It, I just could not be here by myself and make it to my appointments and, you know, and just everything, just day-to-day living, eating, taking medication. I was, it was so debilitating. You, you just have no idea. I, I was permanently on the couch. And when, when I would get up, when my husband would take me to my appointments, first thing I'd do would be put the seat back. Like, you just have zero energy. It's interesting because that sounds tough, but, you know, on the other hand, your husband is probably fortunate if there was a job waiting for him after he took four months off because a lot of people can't do that. Isn't that right, Correct. Sean? Correct. Yes, exactly. Sean? Yeah, that yes. is correct, yeah. Uh, are you looking for any provisions like that to guarantee people's jobs if they have to take the time? Yeah, that's what we will have to look at if, you know, if the federal government, whoever takes power, implements the EI sickness benefit, then we'll have to look at uh, what provinces have that protection for job leave to ensure that people can take advantage of an extended EI benefit for both the patient and the caregiver. And Cindy, uh, do you have a, a priority list of what you would like to see from the government? Uh, yes, I would definitely like to see the sickness benefits change from 15 to 26 weeks. There's no way um, an individual is you know, ready to to go back to work and be a productive employee after 15 weeks. There's just no way. No way. And Sean, what would you like to leave us with on this quickly? Well, I think, you know, the three issues we've put forward are are key issues for, for Canadians faced with a cancer diagnosis. So, you know, ask the questions of which party we think would best support your needs. Sean Sheary, Senior Manager of Analysis at the Canadian Cancer Society and cancer patient, Cindy Barnes. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. On Thursday, Ontario Health Minister Christine Elliott announced $68 million for small and medium-sized hospitals in Ontario. The announcement was made at Casey House, a hospice, which was one of the first facilities to focus on AIDS patients. It will receive an additional $86,000 as a result of this funding move. Christine Elliott joined Libby to explain how all of this will help end hallway health care. This is new money. We have been listening to the uh, both the uh, Ontario Hospital Association as well as many small and medium-sized hospitals who found that the um, actual funding formula that was set up by the previous government put them in a, a structural funding deficit that every year, despite their best efforts, they were still coming up um, on uh, uh, coming up short of money. So this money is going to um, be built into their base now. This will be money that they can expect from year to year that will help them deal with those deficits and be able to provide the care across the province to uh, that people expect and deserve. How would a funding formula have disadvantaged particularly the smaller facilities? Well, there's a different funding formula for small, medium, and large-sized hospitals. And large-sized hospitals were able to get additional funding because they were able to provide more specialized procedures, uh, advanced cardiac care 
or um, uh, trauma care, regardless of what it was. So they were able to get additional funding to add to their base funding. The small and medium-sized hospitals, for the most part, just had the base funding. Uh, I didn't have the opportunity to um, embark on some of those more specialized procedures. And so that always put them in deficit year after year. So we're fixing that funding deficit problem and allowing them to um, plan for the future and be able to provide the uh, the care and innovation that we want to see across the system. In general, there's a move that for specialized services that you really want to go to hospitals that have expertise in that rather than, than having every hospital provide every service and some that they may only do occasionally. Absolutely. We know that not every hospital can provide um, all of those services, nor do we expect them to. They are expensive to provide, and you want to develop that skill and expertise, as you say, to make sure that people get the best possible care. We want to continue to fund those hospitals that do those procedures, of course. But we also want to make sure that the smaller hospitals, the small and medium-sized ones, have adequate base funding in order to care for the people in their communities. So that's really important. How will this go to ending or helping to end hallway health care? They will have that um, additional funding in order to maximize their operations, hopefully be able to help people move out of the hospital um, faster to get more into the home and community care settings that they need. But it also goes along with what our overall transformational plan is to make sure that we can bring our healthcare system into the 21st century and, and to be able to make sure that we provide care, um, whether it's in the hospital or at home. We know that it's not always necessary to provide the care in the hospital. We have also apportioned $155 million in new funds for additional home care supports because we know that people want to be at home as soon as possible. That's better care for them. It's where they want to be. And uh, that's how we uh, can help move them from hospitals and and end the overcrowding situation that we see so that we can um, bring in more patients and not have them treated in hallways, but in actual hospital rooms. I actually have a, a question about a home care. This is just completely anecdotal. She had a double mastectomy, and she was in the hospital uh, only overnight, which is fine. However, in previous years, at the beginning of that homestay, a nurse would visit at home. Well, apparently that's been cut. She, like a, a day after that surgery, had to go to the nurse. No, that would not be the case. We are actually adding more money to health care. We're putting in $1.3 billion more. We've added um, $384 million to hospitals uh, for their operations, uh, plus the $68 million that we announced today, $155 million more in home care. What we want to do is to integrate that care to make sure that by the time your friend left the hospital, for example, that she would know who was providing home care, what services would be provided, and when they would be provided. We are in transition right now. Uh, we have the first uh, local Ontario health teams being fully assessed right now. We have 31 of them, and the expectation is going to be that in order for them to be approved, they will need to follow the patient, not the other way around, to make sure the patient gets the care they need once they're out of hospital as well. 
Ontario Health Minister and Deputy Premier Christine Elliott. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. It seems like a move that is completely contrary to the ideology and beliefs of Premier Doug Ford and his promises about how he's going to run government. Ontario's top bureaucrats are in line for big raises. An order in council outlines the changes to the pay scale for deputy ministers. At the low end, the minimum salary is going up from $205,000 to $234,000, a 14% increase. At the high end, it rises to over $320,000 from just over $311,000, a 3% hike. It also leaves room for performance bonuses based on performance and hitting targets. But there was some confusion on Thursday about the actual percentage increases. Jasmine Pickle, Interim Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, offered her reaction to fight back. As you can imagine, when I read that headline yesterday, I nearly fell out of my seat because this is certainly not a government that we would expect that from based on things that they've said in the past. And especially when we see provinces like Alberta, where their elected politicians, the premier took a 10% pay cut and MLAs took a 5% pay cut. It was shocking to see that here in Ontario, which is the largest subnational debtor on the planet, it was shocking to read headlines that they were raising the pay scale of uh, the salary of unelected officials. So these are deputy ministers, which are top bureaucrats for respective ministries, uh, by 14%. So I was originally quite shocked, but I will say that after I tweeted out (laughs) my shock, uh, I was quickly contacted by the minister's office to correct the headline. So although it had originally, uh, the headline that I read, which was an article released by CDC, had stated that the 14% raise was a raise to the base salary of these deputy ministers. But in reality, what the government has informed me is that Really, the only change is a 2% increase, which is a cost of living increase, essentially, at the high end of the scale. So now the maximum salary that a deputy minister can make has now been raised to 326000 and changed. So, But the minimum uh, has been changed. It's, it's a, the 14% is, is the increase in the minimum at the end of the pay scale. Doesn't mean that they're all getting it. This is true. So I have yet to be told by the ministry why there would have been that increase at the bottom. And maybe it's possible that, you know, this could have been a gradual thing since 2016. I'm not sure. And I think that the government should explain where that comes from at the bottom end. But they did confirm for me that these deputy ministers were eligible to receive up to a 4% base salary increase depending on performance from 2018 to 2019. So the maximum would be 4%, which is still quite high when you're in, when you're in, you know, the $300,000 a year range. But they did confirm that, in fact, the correct number is a 4% base salary increase from 2018 to 2019. Well, uh, uh, that's at the higher end because the original, I mean, my understanding is that the problem with the original reporting was that it said it was 14% across the board. It is 14% at that bottom end. And I'm just in general, you know, why these particular civil servants who are the highest paid? That's a great question. So from the beginning, uh, even before Ford was elected, the Canadian Taxpayers Federation was calling on the government to address uh, this compensation creep and, frankly, bureaucratic bloat that's costing taxpayers 
quite a bit of money in this province. So earlier this year, we heard President of the Treasury Board, Mr. Betham Salvi, talk about how public servants cost, they're about 50% of all expenditure in the province. So uh, about $72 billion a year, which is no small sum. So if we want to return to balance in this province, which is the eventual goal the year after the next election in 2023, uh, we're going to, I mean, it's inevitable we're going to have to address the salaries of, of these bureaucrats. And uh, it was interesting. Recently, the Fraser Institute released a report that analyzed public sector workers, so government workers, uh, with comparable counterparts outside of government. And they found that government workers earn an average of 11% more than people outside of government in similar roles. And they also retire sooner with better pensions. So from the beginning, we've always said that, look, you know, the public sector salaries, which are ever and ever going upward would be a great place to start bringing them back in line with reality uh, and you know what everyone else faces in in the private sector the people who pay their salaries that would be a great place to uh, look for savings to start looking for savings when we need to you know get this province back in good fiscal shape jasmine what would you like to leave us with I would just say that this government was voted in really with one strong mandate, and that was to get the province's books back in order. Fifty percent of what we spend every year goes to goes into public sector salaries, and that's an area where we need to see strong leadership from this government. You know, we need them to stop saying they didn't even freeze wages. They, they legislated, uh, you know, this 1% cap. So uh, we're looking for strong and decisive steps taken from this government to curb spending and the public sector salaries would be a great place to start. Jasmine Pickle, Interim Ontario Director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. I'm Jane Brown. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Janet in Barry phoned to say it's not right the Ford government at Queen's Park is rewarding some bureaucrats with higher salary increases than unionized government employees. If this government is giving their members a cost of living increase, then they better start thinking about the people who are poorer than them who are asking for cost of living increase. The people at the bottom of the scale, like QP, could not get a cost of living increase. And also, right now, I don't understand how this works. Our government has decided to have a big holiday and collecting a paycheck, and yet they can go ahead and do some kind of an order in council to create this kind of thing. Brian Amimico offered his perspective on a couple of different possible outcomes in the federal election. A majority liberal government would be a disaster for us and our grandchildren. A minority government liberal government backed up by the Greens or the NDP would be a disaster for our great-great-grandchildren because it would take that long to pay it off if they ever could. We just can't afford them. That's all there is to it. Grace in Toronto phone to talk about the high expenses around cancer care. My brother was diagnosed with cancer. He didn't have insurance, so it was a huge mess. And then what ended up happening is my mom, who was a senior, had to take out a line of credit on her house to help him with his expenses, paying his house, paying his mortgage on time, because we didn't know whether he was going to live or whether he was going to make it through the um, the treatments. And 
it was a very chronic time in our lives. We were all pitching in, trying to help him out financially as much as we could. I wish that there was some place I could go to to get some financial help to help him because we only we all had our own bills as well. Uh, so it was a very, very tough time for the whole entire family. And now, Fightback's Knockout Call of the Week. Great calls as always, but the winner of the Fightback Knockout Call of the Week comes from Sherry in Oakville, who phoned to say legalized marijuana is only a good thing for Canada. I'm very much in favor for the, obviously, the cannabis and the hemp um, industry to be in my country, but really for the, for the reasons of being what the revenues are bringing into our country, for the jobs that it's bringing into our country. I mean, that alone we can't ignore. It's not perfect. Nothing is. There's still going to be concerns years out. At the end of the day, I think it's still just a fear of the unknown, but it's going to bring so much goodness, I believe, to our country. I'm just saying I'm very much in favor of it, and I'm very excited about what it's going to do for revenues and jobs. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby. I'm Jane Brown. Make sure to join me again next weekend for a roundup of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Neimer. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.